This is a recording from a Sunday meeting of the BC Humanist Association in Vancouver. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of the BCHA or its board of directors. To learn more about humanism and to support our work, visit bchumanist.ca. And make sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And be sure to subscribe to the BC Humanist Podcast. Trevor Melanson manages communications with Clean Energy Canada. Clean Energy Canada is a think tank with the SFU's Morsk J. Wask Centre for Dialogue that tries to champion our society's transition to cleaner energy. I'm sure he'll have lots to say and we'll take lots of questions at the end that I'm sure you'll have. So I'll turn it over to Trevor. So I guess first of all, I'll just introduce myself and uh, the organization that I'm here representing, Clean Energy Canada. Uh, I've actually been, for most of my career, a journalist, um, but a couple of years ago I joined a think tank, and I've really enjoyed my time there. Um, so Clean Energy Canada is a think tank uh, that's part of SFU, and uh, what we focus on a lot are kind of big picture climate policies, like carbon pricing, um, and a number of policies that you may or may not have heard of, like one's called the Clean Fuel Standard, which aims to make all fuel in Canada cleaner. Uh, we have policies around what the government buys and, and making those purchases cleaner and, and consider sort of the long-term impacts of those purchases, both in terms of cost, because when you think long-term, you can actually make a better cost decision, but also in terms of emissions. So those are the kinds of policies that we as an organization focus on. Um, there are environmental, environmental groups and, and organizations in, in BC especially, but across Canada, that spend a lot of time uh, talking about pipelines, for example. Um, and that's not something that we really focus on, not because we individually don't have opinions on it, just because there are so many other organizations that focus on it that we focus more on these sort of these big picture policies. So that's kind of where we're coming from. Um, I'm actually curious, and I, I, I don't expect like a lot of hands, but uh, have, have any of you heard of Clean Energy Canada? Oh, that's, that's pretty good, a few people. Um, great, so I will, uh, I will dive in now. Um, kind of the theme of today is I, I want to talk about energy not just as a transition. You've probably heard this phrase, energy transition, clean energy transition. But there's another T word that I think also helps describe this well, and that's transformation. Um, in that it's not just about, it's not just a shift. It's really changing in some incredibly fundamental ways that I kind of need to explain to you in, in order for that to make sense, but hopefully that will um, become clear as I go on. Uh, and to, to kind of start off in terms of structure, I'll begin with sort of some top line numbers, and, and then we'll kind of move into some big trends that kind of hit on that transformation theme. And then I'm going to shift to Canada and talk about sort of how Canada fits into all this. Um, I want to do away with this notion that, first of all, that clean energy is something that's small or unproven or a niche or unreliable. I read a column a few weeks ago by Margaret Wente in the Golden Mail who said that, tech, that the, she said the technology to seriously cut carbon pollution doesn't exist yet, and that could not be farther from the truth. That is just unambiguously false, the notion that we don't have the technology yet to you know, power the world, uh, and clean energy is just, it's not true. We do have that technology, and it's, it's quite something in terms of how it's accelerating now. Uh, and I hope you'll agree with me in an hour if you do not already. Um, here's a chart to kick that argument off. So, 
you may not have known this, but since uh, for the past what's this, seven years, I think it is, seven, eight years now, um, out of all the new power that comes online, a majority of it is clean energy. So most power in the world isn't clean, right? It's, it's, a, lot of, it's a lot of coal, there's a lot of oil and natural gas. But you know, for the, since 2011, so yeah, seven years now, every year when you just look at the new power that's coming online, the majority of that is clean energy. So this is not alternative. This is not niche. Um, and it's not just for environmental reasons. It's increasingly about cost. Clean energy is and sometimes is beating fossil fuels on, like, on cost. And, and these are 2016 numbers. So this is not even, um, you know, as you can see, it's constantly declining. So this is not even as, as good as it is now. So here's sort of the fossil fuel cost range right here. And here's sort of the, the big kind of the, sort of the, the big three kind of new clean energy uh, types here. Uh, we're not including hydro here, obviously, but um, you look at solar, and there's a big range, right? Because like depending where you, you put solar, the country and yada yada, you get a big cost range. But a lot of it is absolutely competitive on fossil fuels, onshore wind, in some cases below. Offshore wind is the, the costliest here, but that's because offshore wind is the newest technology. Um, those are the, you know, the big turbines that you see in the water. We don't really have a lot of it here in Canada, um, but uh, there's a lot of it in Europe. So you know, this idea that you know, clean energy is something that can't compete on its own is just not true anymore. Um, and yeah, so like to, to look kind of out as well, because I said you know these numbers are going to get even better. Uh, here are some projections from um, IRENA, which is the International Renewable Energy Agency. Uh, within 10 years, we, they estimate that onshore wind, uh, in terms of cost, is going to fall uh, another 26%. Offshore winds, the, the wind in the water, is going to fall by 35% in price. And solar, which we're seeing just huge uptake in, is going to fall uh, another 57%. You know, solar is already you know, the cheapest source of power in many places, especially in rural India. Uh, a lot of solar is going online there, right? Because it's a great power source if you don't have a grid to connect to. Um, and it is often the cheapest solar. I mean, Ch China, which is the biggest producer of, um, of solar power technology, their number one international client is India. Uh, and, and, and jobs are a part of this. You know, that's, this, is, uh, this is again from IRENA, same agency. And uh, in 2017, their estimate was 10 million people were employed in clean energy. I have a Canadian number, which I'll get back to later in the Canadian section as well. So, you know, a lot of people are, are employed in this industry as well. Um, so now I'm going to shift to sort of those, those trends that I talked about. Those are some top line figures. But now I'm going to shift to talking about those big transformative trends that are changing this, the, the very nature of energy. Uh, no one, like I said 30 seconds ago, is doing this at the scale of China. And here's just one example here. Because uh, China loves electric cars. And uh, part of that, again, this is just focusing on one thing, is the batteries that go to power those electric cars. So this is all battery production related to electric cars in China. And this is the rest of the world. China wants to compete with the US and Russian oil and gas by being a clean energy and EV superpower. That's its plan. So and another one here. So 40% of global clean energy investment in 2017 was in China. 40% of investment in one country. I know China's a big country, but that's still bigger than you'd expect. And for context, that is uh, $133 billion. 
in China, solar power, think about how big China is, now represents 7.3% of its generating capacity. 7.3% in the country's biggest China is a lot of solar power. They're putting up solar field after solar field, and wind, that's just solar, that's not including wind as well. So China also puts up a lot of wind. They also produce, I, I mentioned that they're sort of the, the leader in, in manufacturing clean technology or solar technology. They produce 60% of solar cells, some of the small things, and 71% 70, of like the bigger modules in the world. And as I pointed out, it's the same thing with EVs. EV sales in China increased by 73% last year of 2016. And, and here's the interesting thing though, and it, it relates to this, 90% of those sales in China were for domestic cars, made in China, not Teslas. And this is, this is China's opening into the international auto sector, affordable EVs. When you're building that many EVs at that scale, there's an entire world that's shifting to these types of cars. That's China's in. China has not been as competitive in the auto sector historically as America and Europe and Japan and South Korea. But when you look at this number and you think about how the world is shifting to electric cars, you can start to understand their strategic position. So China, that's the first big trend we want to talk about today. The next one is a, is a less intuitive one, and it's that big oil is shifting to renewables. So I mentioned a few companies there, Shell, Statoil, Total, BP. Shell will be investing a billion dollars in renewable energy every year starting in 2020. Statoil has made big investments in offshore wind drawing on expertise that it has with offshore oil drilling, and it plans to invest $16 billion Canadian in renewables by 2030. Total, a top player in solar and battery power, wants low carbon business to account for 20% of its portfolio by 2035. BP, which claims to have the largest operating renewables business among all of its peers, has invested heavily in solar, wind, and biofuels, and uh, I think it was in December, spent $200 million buying a solar company. The reason for this, well, there was a report by Wood McKenzie put out um, a few months ago, I think, and it basically said that oil and gas companies that adopt renewables early will be at a competitive advantage, and those that don't will be at a disadvantage. Now, unfortunately, Canadian oil companies are lagging their global peers in terms of doing this. Suncor has made some investments in wind, but it sold off some of those, not all of them, but a couple of them last year. Enbridge and TransCanada, which are pipeline companies, uh, not oil and gas producers, they've made investments as well, but TransCanada has also sold off renewable assets. So these big oil companies are, like any company that wants to survive the next 100 years, taking the shift very seriously. But uh, Canada has room to grow in that regard. The next big trend I want to talk about is the fact that companies are also uh, choosing clean energy. So it's not just, a, traditionally we think of countries as sort of the determiners and purchasers of energy, but we're seeing a huge um, pressure coming from the private sector. Again, that's another transformative thing we're seeing. It's become something of a competition almost between the world's largest corporations. As of January, 122 multinational companies uh, had committed to sourcing 100% renewable electricity as members of the RE100. Put another way, if those 122 companies were a country, its electricity demand would be the 24th highest in the world. And that's just one group. That's just the RE100. It's a very specific thing. It's just, they have specific members. And um, 
but if you look beyond that even, so look at, okay, let's just say, look, let's look at America's biggest companies, right? So among uh, sort of the Fortune 500, so America's 500 biggest companies, roughly half of them now have renewable energy targets. They not, may not be 100%, but they have them. And if you narrow it to the top 100, it's about two-thirds. Two-thirds of the 100 biggest companies in the United States have renewable energy targets. Unfortunately, in Canada, um, I mentioned the RE100, TD is the only Canadian member. There are 41 companies in the US and 25 in the UK that are members of this group, but just one in Canada. You know, there's the caveat that Canada has a lot of, actually has a very clean grid. I understand that, a lot of hydropower, but it sends a very good message, of course, to join this group and actually commit to going 100%. And uh, behind me here, you can see some of these big companies. Not too surprising, right? Uh, I mean, it's, these are kind of the biggest companies in the world now. You know, you, you looked at uh, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, it was a lot of um, oil companies, a lot of auto companies. But now you look at the, the top companies, and it's your Googles and your Apples and, and so forth. And you know, Google is uh, one, you know, uh, which hit 100% last year. So they're an RE member. And something like a quarter of those RE members have already hit their 100% target. And the other three quarters are still striving. Google hit it in like December or something. Um, and that's, they bought a lot of power um, last year. Apple, uh, and you can see you know, Facebook, Microsoft, but you know, GM, T-Mobile. Um, so yeah, number, number of companies doing this. The next trend, and whenever we talk about this trend on like social media, this always gets the most engagement. People love talking about electric cars. People are very excited to own an electric car. It's a very easy one to convince people on, actually. Um, here's the Canadian number. So Canada is actually not, uh, compared to some other countries, doesn't have a ton of EVs, but it's growing quickly. So if you were curious, Fleet Karma collects this data every year. In 2017, 68, there were 68% more electric cars sold last year than in 2016. So that's pretty fast growth. Uh, question. So. Who in this room thinks they will likely buy an electric car in their lifetime? The point here is growth. And I, a second point that I'd make is that, so that you know, percent and a quarter percent and a half in Canada is well behind, I think, Denmark, which is high 20%, like, like 27% or something. Um, it's, it's been, Canada is, last I checked, I haven't compared it with the 2017 numbers, but behind America, um, behind China, behind the UK, behind a number of countries. So uh, Canada actually doesn't have as many EVs on the road as it could, but um, they're increasing very quickly. People seem very excited about them, and part of that has to do with cost, of course. Uh, there are just, it used to be five years ago that, well, you know, if you can afford a $90,000 Tesla, great, but now we're seeing $30,000 cars, and people, and even if they're paying a little bit more, there are rebates as well, but even if you're paying a little bit more and you start crunching the numbers on how much you're going to spend to, to fuel that car, especially with today's gas prices, you can very quickly make the determination that this is a good financial decision, not just a good environmental one. Well, batteries are getting better and better and better, and they have pretty good ranges, and you also have to look at the number of charging points that are coming online in Canada rapidly. Uh, I think Tesla is actually committed to doing a number of them. Um, they're installing more across, basically across the highways. It, there, there's a, I don't remember the URL, but there is a map, an interactive map of all the charging stations in Canada, and you'd be surprised. In Hope, Kamloops, wherever, there's charging. And fast chargers, which are increasingly building now, they're not all of them, they charge your car in 20 minutes. It's pretty good. Um, so yeah, charging anxiety. There was another poll I don't have in front of me again. There was a poll that asked about, it's called range anxiety. 
and to describe that feeling. And they looked at people who owned EVs. And almost everybody who owned an EV did not have range anxiety. It was only people who didn't own an EV and were thinking about it. Um, so yeah, by the end of, speaking of like all the models, by the end of 2017, there were in the world 156 EV models to choose from. It was 97 at the start of 2016. And by 2020, the number of all EV models available in the world will be 217. Let's talk about a few specific car companies. General Motors will introduce 20 new EVs over the next six years. As of 2019, all, all new Volvo cars will be fully electric or hybrids. You may have heard that news. Volvo is going all in in just a couple years. Volkswagen has pledged 20 electric models by 2020 and 300 by 2030. And another kind of pressure, countries are increasingly announcing dates beyond which they will ban fossil fuel powered cars, gas and diesel. Some of the obvious suspects here like Norway. This is the biggest, obviously the scariest one for automakers. Uh, is China announcing that. They haven't picked a date yet. Germany's also a big one, but Britain's a big one. France is a very big one. When you have entire countries announcing these dates, it's a very clear signal to automakers that they need to start shifting. So you can understand what I just said before this in terms of the targets and the goals that automakers have. Um, you can't afford not to start this transition. The next big transition, I want to, the next big trend I want to talk about is, nope, it's still EVs. Uh, <laughs> one more stat. There will be 100 million electric cars on the road. Uh, and when that's going to happen depends on who you ask. And this is, I think this is a great chart because if you look at who's on here, these are not organizations you would associate with being, having rosy projections about this. Maybe Bloomberg New Energy Finance, you would. And they ex expect there'll be 100 million electric cars on the road in the world, 100 million. Uh, it's two and a half times Canada's population, more actually, by 2030. The organization of petroleum exporting companies, 2030 true, uh, 2032. Um, BHP, Exxon Mobile, like oil companies, 2035, 2040. That would be all cars in the world, yeah. I don't know exactly what percentage of that would be China, but obviously a lot of them would be. Okay, the next big trend here. Uh, energy is getting smarter. I mean, this one really hits on, I think, the transformation theme. It's not just... Uh, it's not just the hardware that's improving. We talk a lot about like turbines and solar panels, but also the, the software that goes into energy. 90% of all data in the world was created in just the last two years. Civilization has never possessed so much, I'm not saying it's all good data, but uh, civilization has never possessed so much information so quickly, and energy systems are no exception to this. While digital technologies have been used in energy for decades, investment in digital electricity infrastructure in software now grows by 20% a year. Here's one example. So Australia will still be home to the world's biggest virtual power plant. It will digitally connect solar panels and Tesla batteries installed in more than 50,000 homes. This is really useful because um, you, you collect all this, obviously Australia has a lot of sun, has some of the best solar potential in the world. You have this, you have this basically this virtual power plant of 50,000 like homes with solar panels on the roofs and they all have batteries, right? People often when they're criticizing solar, they say, well, you know, you have power when the sun's out, but when the sun goes down, what's the solution to that? It's energy storage, it's batteries. So if you have 50,000 batteries as well, you're saving up a lot of energy, and then when the sun goes down and there's peak demand, you have it not only were you, you know, generating using the energy during the day, but you have all that saved up energy. 
so um, that can be used efficiently because maybe one home, you know, their solar panels are generating energy, but if they're not using it and it's, you know, it's not, it's kind of going to waste, right? Potential is going to waste. It's not creating emissions, which is great, but it, this, this captures that potential and stores it and can shoot it back to the grid and somebody else can use that power. So this is what I mean when I say energy is being smarter, and this is one of the great solutions to um, making, you know, making solar, solar a very useful energy even when the sun isn't shining. Yeah, they, they launched a similar project last year, and was, it was a, Australia did. It was a marketplace for people with solar panels and batteries to sell the power they generate to the grid. And, you know, for the same idea. So that was more of a kind of a market-driven solution. This is like a specific project, but that was sort of like, you know, if you had solar panels and a battery, you could kind of, you could join this marketplace and, you know, different prices and so forth. Um, and uh, last summer, another example, a company, this is not in Australia, called eMotorWorks launched a peer-to-peer -peer charging marketplace in California. The idea is that electric car drivers could pay each other to use their home char uh, chargers. Blockchain, the key technology behind Bitcoin, is used to verify each uh, transaction. transaction. Uh, I mean, there's no central regulator. And we're, we're increasingly, I'm not an expert on blockchain. Please don't ask me questions about blockchain. Um, but it is a technology that's increasingly being used in these energy transactions because it can be made on a moment's notice without a central, central regulator, which is very useful in countries that, are, that have high levels of corruption. Um, and... Uh, yeah, so when you're making all these like rapid tra transactions um, because you're selling energy to a grid or whatever, um, blockchain is very useful for microtransactions. Again, don't ask me about blockchain. I've given you the extent of my knowledge. Uh, so now I want to talk about Canada. I said I'd talk about Canada. Uh, and uh, first, just some sort of uh, perspective, though. Uh, the global marketplace for low carbon, because I want to talk about the opportunity for Canada. The growing global market for low-carbon goods and services is now worth $5.8 trillion, with a T, and it's growing by about 3% a year. The Cleantech 200, which is ranking of the world's biggest publicly traded companies that earn significant <laughs> revenue from clean energy, was launched in 2016. It was updated this February. Over that year and a half period, Clean Tech 200 returns have outperformed fossil fuel, a fossil fuel benchmark, by a factor of two to one. And uh, Canada is part of this as well. So I mentioned I'd mentioned those uh, job figures in Canada, and StatsCan actually does have a number for this. It's employment in they call it environmental and clean technology, the product sector, and it's 274,000. Give you some examples. There are lots of examples. This is a very, very not exhaustive list. Uh, start with a local one. Uh, a lot of you probably know Ballard Power, Ballard Power, because they have a very long history, and now they're doing ver they're doing quite well now. Uh, as is Hydrogenics. They've started reaping these rewards. Both companies produce fuel cells that convert hydrogen into clean electricity. Now, nearly half of Ballard sales come from China. Not surprising there, as the country adds hydrogen-fueled electric buses to its roads. So Ballard cited a record $121 million in revenue last year. My point here is that hydrogen demand is very real now, and the company is seeing kind of a chance and opportunity in money that it has never seen before. Uh, as is another company, Hydrogenics, uh, which is very similar to Ballard, I think based in Toronto. Um, now, for a less contentious company, E-Line uh, e is an all-electric yellow school bus. In fact, it was the, the first... Um, 
all electric kind of classic yellow school bus, as in it has like, you know, this specific shape, uh, built in North America. And it was built in Quebec. We have another one called Green Power Bus built in uh, Vancouver, but it's more of like a, like a flat face bus. And, there's, and they're selling them across North America. I know a number of uh, jurisdictions in California have been buying them. And uh, here in Norway is, this is called the Ampere, and it's a fully electric ferry. And it's powered by Canadian technology. Another local company, Corvus. Corvus Energy supplied its batteries and its charging stations that like are on the shore. Um, and now uh, the country, Norway, is building a lot more of them. And I think in Northern Europe in general now, there's a, a number of electric ferries that are being built. And uh, I don't know if you heard, it didn't get a kind of coverage, but we're uh, in Canada, uh, Ontario just ordered the first two electric ferries, fully electric ferries, not, uh, as in not ferries on like wires, but like you know, free-floating ferries, whatever they're called, uh, in Kingston. So uh, Ontario is now getting fully electric ferries, which is exciting for them. I hope we get some soon. I'm sure we will. But uh, uh, the fact that, like I said, Corvus Energy, a local company, is kind of uh, supplying the batteries and charging stations for these ferries is great. Because there's a lot of, I won't dig too much into this, but there's a lot of room actually to cut emissions in, in sort of marine in, in boats and not a lot of focus on it. So this is a really great start. So let's talk a little bit more about Canadian success stories, because it is good news. And just to say that uh, the Global Clean Tech 100, which is sort of a list of uh, the leading clean tech companies in the world, or the, most, uh, the ones that are deemed to have the most potential, out of 100 of them in the world, 13 were from Canada. That's good. Seven of those 13, so seven of 100 leading global clean tech companies in the world are from BC which I'd point out is the province that had North America's first carbon tax. Yes, so speaking of Canada, we're a global mining leader. Mining is actually integral to this transition. People don't necessarily think of mining as like a clean energy thing. There's ecological concerns and sustainable mining is really important that we implement best practices. But, uh, and this is something, but mining is integral. At the end of the day, the metals and minerals that go into solar panels and wind turbines and electric cars uh, it's, it's a huge part of this. And here's one stat, for example. An electric car requires four times as much copper as a gas-powered vehicle. And Canada is the 10th largest copper reserves. Mines, processing facilities, and advanced exploration projects for metals needed in solar panels can be found across Canada, uh, like copper, lead, and zinc. And this is just to visualize like basically where all these projects are across Canada that could feed into electric cars. And you think about that big demand. It's a way to visualize what that opportunity is like for Canada. And like I said, it's obviously important. There's a mine, I think, Borden or something, in Ontario that's actually transitioning to entirely like electric power uh, as well. Like all their vehicles and stuff are all going to be electric powered. So. Um, yeah, it's important that this, this uh, is mining grows in areas like, uh, like lithium, for example. I think there's a lithium mine that like a Chinese company, do I have it mentioned here? I don't think I do. No. There's a, there's a lithium company in China that um, one of the biggest battery companies uh, in China just bought like, like a month ago or bought a controlling stake in as well. Obviously, it's a high demand for lithium for electric cars, but really high demand for, for copper, for cobalt is another one. There's a cobalt uh, mine in like a small town in Ontario. It might be called Cobalt Ontario. Anyways, and, and they're seeing a lot of uh, good news out of this as well. Nope. And the last stat I didn't say is that 14 of the 19 minerals and minerals used in solar panels are found in Canada. 
So my point here is that you know mining is not really factored in. We talked about those clean energy jobs. Mining is not really factored into that, right? But it's clearly a part of it, and it's clearly benefiting from it. So you know this clean energy transition, this transformation ripples through sectors in good ways, in ways that create challenges as well for certain industries. But it's big, and it's a big opportunity. And Canada's well positioned to really benefit as well from it. Uh, we are lagging in some categories, as I mentioned, as well, uh, particularly with some of our, our larger companies. But we also have a lot of champions, a lot of smaller companies that are doing really great things that are world leading, that are competing, uh, a traditional sector that can really benefit from this. Um, and if you, if you listen to like the mining sector, like, they're talking about this a lot, like they're excited about this. So we need to be deliberate about maxing, uh, maximizing on those opportunities as a country while managing the risks, particularly in the oil sector, that come with this transformation. Because it is big and is most definitely happening whether or not people like Margaret Wente completely buy into it. Um, and that is the end of my presentation. Um, but obviously, I'm sure you have questions, and I'm happy to take them. Oh. Oh, good morning. Uh, thank you very much for your uh, for your presentation. Um, I just wanted to uh, mention and then um, ask you a question. Uh, probably one of the biggest things in this industry in this transition is called hypocrisy, right? I mean, like, and I'll give you some statistics, and, and you, you probably even know more than this. Uh, I was just looking. The IMF has done a study, and the IMF, no, no radical organization, right wing organization, that the carbon uh, subsidies in the world are 5.6 trillion, no, 5.3 trillion dollars. So they, we're keeping the carbon industry going by subsidizing it. And so for right-wing economists always to talk about these industries can't compete, well, yeah, you can't compete when they're getting money, okay? The other thing is, is that the IMF a couple years ago actually looked also and it was, it was almost a half a trillion dollars, and even Canada right now provides direct handouts to the oil industry. So half a trillion dollars in the world is being, is being given to the biggest, most profitable companies in, in the world. And so if you want to talk about competitive capitalism, you've got to deal with those public policy issues in terms of that. And you're, and you're well aware of what happened in the U.S. They had a, the... the, the solar company, what was it, uh, Sunvia went, went broke after, and, and they blamed Obama because they gave it $200 million. And Newt Gingrich, when he was running, laughed at renewable energy, and Exxon Oil was giving him money, and Exxon Oil has a $300 million renewable energy project growing algae. That's what I mean about contradictions, and you know, hypocrisy is just unbelievable. But I guess my question to you is, is that is, is not one of the biggest benefits. We're, we're not only going to save the planet, but if you look at what's happening to automation in the world and where the job's going to come from, this is, this is the future for humanity, right? Is people working all over the world to move from a carbon economy to a renewable energy and save the planet. I mean, that, that's, that's just going to be a real win-win if we can get the right public policies. Um. I think I agree with everything you just said. Uh, it is very true that you know oil and gas and fossil fuel industries have received a lot of subsidies, and whenever this frame is used to attack renewables, it is very annoying and hypocritical for that reason. Um, 
and there are certainly a number of clean energy jobs. In terms of you know our automated future, I don't know, maybe we all need to start working 20 hours a week. <laughs> but that is uh, definitely a big issue as well. It's a sep separate but also you know affected issue by this. Thank you very much. That was very informative. My question is, when I see um, all the mining activity that has to take place to support this, it, then how does that? How is that renewable? Are we going to run out of copper? Or are we going to run out of lithium? Or you know, then what? Yeah. Um, so I mean, yeah, mining is a, is a very valid valid concern, and uh, I think there's still quite a lot of most lithium, especially, I think, has still not been used. Um, and a lot of mines actually need to get up and running to actually extract all the lithium that we need right now. And obviously, uh, copper demand is high. Um, as with anything, there are emissions, though. As with anything, any form of production, there's always emissions. Emissions are tied to everything. So it's not, you know, a question of... It, it really is a question of better in a big way, right? And at the end of the day, and there have been studies on this, people have... Um, attack clean energy on grounds of like it uses mining, but there have been studies on this, there has been analysis, and even when you factor in uh, the mining elements, we look at the life cycle of clean energy, it is much better. It always wins out. So, you know, it is important, especially I think emissions, it's unambiguous, but especially on sort of ecological grounds. Um, obviously, we had a very high profile uh, mining situation uh, a few years ago here in BC. So obviously, those concerns are top of mind, and they should be. And I'm certainly an advocate of having very rigorous standards for, for mining companies and so forth and so on. And that, that needs to be a huge part of this as well, to get the buy-in that we need for mining development as part of this. Yeah, hi. Thanks for interesting presentation. Um, where does uh, nuclear fit into this? Uh, there are still people saying that uh, we won't be able to do a transition without including that. And uh, there are some technologies now that you know, we've had a presentation from a prof there that was talking about a new, new way of doing nuclear which can relieve the problem of waste from existing power nuclear plants and also use thorium and various other things that are uh, currently uneconomic in the, in the current generation. So. You know where, where does that fit? I, I notice it's not not listed on your your brochure. The other thing I wanted to ask about is uh, when can we get uh, Chinese electric cars, and and how is uh, Trump's push for protectionism going to factor into all this? Yeah, Trump's push for protectionism is obviously a, a big concern right now, and uh, hopefully there isn't a trade war that's going to keep brewing. Um, so nuclear power isn't something that we I'll, I'll weigh on it, but it's not something that we focus on. And it is really contentious. And people on the side of the fence, some people like nuclear, some people don't. So nuclear is, it should be stated, non-emitting. It is a non-emitting power source. Obviously, there have been some very, like Chernobyl, and some very high-profile nuclear disasters. And that's, I think, what people really worry about with nuclear, especially if you live in an earthquake zone. Now, what are those risks, actually? And you have to weigh them against, well, I mean, the risks first of, you know, there isn't much risk you know, when it comes to solar and, and, and wind turbines. But when you're comparing nuclear to coal, for example, when you consider just the number of people that die from air pollution as a result of these power sources, I mean, way more than people that are obviously, you know, die in these very exceptional uh, situations with nuclear. Um, but they're very high profile. They're very much in the news. People remember them. They're not looking, they're, people don't think about dying from air pollution. They don't think about their cancer having, having been more likely because of air pollution from coal. 
So, you know, certainly, uh, but having said that, nuclear is also very expensive. And I don't have the numbers in front of me, but like, I think even in terms of cost at this point, where solar and wind are at, I think it makes more sense to pursue these as, as, as solutions alongside battery storage and continuation with, uh, with hydro as well. Um, but yeah, I, I personally am neither for nor against nuclear. It's not, it's not an emitting source, and it deserves credit for not being an emitting source. And overall, I'm sure it has lowered emissions from what they would otherwise be. Thank you. That was a very encouraging presentation. Um, can you tell me, is there a government program in place to give grants to strata councils or a rental apartment owners to retrofit their buildings with solar panels? For solar panels? Um, you know, I don't think so. I thought you were going to say EVs. But uh, for solar <laughs> for solar panels, well, what I know is, so in Alberta, I think it's the only province right now, you can sell your solar energy back to the grid. So if you live in Alberta and you install solar panels on your roof, there's a limit on like how much solar you can generate, you know, before you are like, you're not like a regular household with solar panels on its roof anymore. Um, but you can actually sell that back to the grid and you can, uh, there's an economist in Alberta named Andrew Leach, he, he's done it and he's kind of run the numbers and I, I think it, it pays back in like 50, 10 or 15 years or something like that. Um, but, oh, and, and I think there are as well, I think there are, in, yeah, in Alberta, I, ble I believe there are also um, rebates on it too, government ones. I'm not sure in BC though. Yeah, you could look into it. Um, it's something that people are still catching up to, especially this idea of selling. So part of the selling back the grid, like that's a very new concept. And last I checked, only Alberta had it in place, but I expect it to come here. I expect it to come elsewhere. So I think it's, yeah, a combination of rebates and also the ability to make money or offset in the cost of your, uh... oh, as for EVs. Um, so that, that, that policy is happening really rapidly right now, and it tends to, it's one of the few areas where most of the policies we focus on are, are provincial or federal, and this is actually one of the ones that's not completely but largely municipal. Um, and it is, it, is so, it is a challenge. So if you own a house, no problem, right? Just install your EV charging station and there are rebates for that. Now, if you live in a, a new, all, all new condo buildings in Vancouver um, need to be set up for, for charging. Actually, it was, a few weeks ago, the city of Vancouver said that all new buildings, 100% of parking spots in all new condo buildings beat in Vancouver, need to be ready for uh, EV installation. And, um, you know, and it used to be like 25% or something like that. Increasingly, older condo, condo buildings are choosing to, uh, I live, I rent a building that's built in like 1992 or something on Maine. Um, and I just get like a couple months ago, they sent the Strata an email saying that, hey, we're installing EV chargers. It's good for our property values. We should do this. And so they're adding them now. So I think you're going to see that more and more, but it's an issue. Like what if you live in a condo building that was built in 1990 and your Strata is just like, no, you don't want to think about this. Um, and that could obviously make it hard. Uh, there have been some jurisdictions uh, that have essentially introduced policy. Maybe one's in California. I think Ontario is considering it. Don't quote me on that, but there have been jurisdictions for sure that have introduced policy that essentially makes it, it I think it's in California, so that so long as the owner of the EV is willing to pay for the costs of installing that charging station, um, both the cost of installation and the continued costs of like the actual energy use, which is you know, very low, uh, Estrada cannot say no. So that's, that's a policy that you could do here, like just to like, you can it's very easy to target new buildings and houses aren't a problem. 
the issues with older buildings and stratas that just don't want to think about it. Uh, and the policy that you can implement is one that essentially forces the strata to approve it so long as you're covering the costs. Hi, Trevor, over here. <laughs> I don't have a question, just a couple comments. Earlier you were talking about the EVs, the electric vehicles. Um, you quoted a percentage, 68%. That's coming from 2017, so I did a little research. And um, the overall number of plug-in vehicles in Canada is 50,000 right now. 50,000. Um, the second point, I'm not going to ask you about blockchain technology. Other than to point out that it does use a lot of energy, uh, there was a thing on CBC just, I think, yesterday or the day before. Here's some interesting numbers. Um, where is it? This is worldwide. 35 terawatt hours are being used in computers to crunch the math that makes uh, Bitcoin work. Um, this is in 150 countries worldwide. They're adding to that, uh, that uh, number by 450 gigawatts per hour. Um, on a daily basis. That's more than what the country of Haiti uses in an entire year. So there's going to be a cost for uh, power. Uh, we may save on one hand, but our elect electricity bills may go way up. So thank you. Uh, I will comment on that anyway, because it's, it's a great point about um, Bitcoin specifically. So when I talk about blockchain, the technology being used to like create a quick transaction, that's not necessarily feeding to that issue. The issue with, with like Bitcoin is that it takes so long to mine a Bitcoin. Like you just need to use so many video cards and so many computers to actually create uh, a Bitcoin or an, you know any other type of currency. Like that's what's draining the power. It's not like you know using the technology like quickly for a transaction isn't the issue. It's the issue of like all the mining to, and the fact that it gets harder and harder and harder to, to mine. Uh, the currency uh, now, yeah. It's, it's overall, I'd say it's a it's a it's a bad it's a silly problem we have right now um, <laughs> that we're we're actually using a lot of energy to create like a currency that why does it exist um, and it's a real problem on the flip on the flip side not really on the flip side but there is actually an argument that if this this continues um, that it's better that 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 bitcoin mining happens in jurisdictions that are powered by clean energy right and i think there was some bitcoin plant somewhere that was actually looking at quebec as well which has a lot of hydroelectricity where you know it's it's still not a great practice because it just drains energy and i'm not sure that the output is really worth the energy but if you're going to do it um, you might as well do it in a jurisdiction that has a cleaner energy grid. So that's one of the solutions, and it's a solution actually that already Bitcoin miners have already been examining. Uh, you mentioned hydro a couple times, but you didn't really get into that. I was wondering if you could talk, and you don't need you know the big debate in BC in the last what, five years or longer uh, has been Site C Dam, but I know you, Clean Energy Canada doesn't have a position on yes or no on that, but likes clean energy, obviously. Maybe you could talk about the role of hydro in the world, how it's grown and how it's still growing, uh, particularly I think in China has built some big dams recently as well. Um, and then maybe also if you want to spin off the water theme, geothermal is also interesting in tidal and some of those more experimental ideas. Um, sure, yeah. So, uh, so Site C is obviously um, was a contentious issue in BC. I won't dive too much into whether or not you know, it should have been approved. It was. Um, the one thing we'll comment on, though, is is the needed power demand in BC. Because um, some people have said that the power that Site C is going to generate, we don't need it. Um, if we're going to hit our climate targets, 
we actually are going to need it. There's other ways we could have gotten that power, perhaps better ways. Um, it, like what I've talked about, obviously, with, with uh, uh, wind and solar and sort of smaller hydro projects. Um, but we do need the power. That's the one thing I'll say, that in order to um, hit our climate targets is mass electrification is sort of the number one opportunity for Canada. Um, so Canada has a very clean hydro grid already. It's in the 70s, something like basically a, around three quarters of Canada's power grid is non-emitting. And the biggest reason for that is hydropower because Canada has always had abundant hydropower, which is great, puts us at a real advantage. It's a competitive advantage because increasingly businesses um, that are thinking about their emissions are looking at the life cycle emissions of all their um, operations, including what they're buying. So if they have the opportunity, to, if they're buying aluminum and aluminum from Quebec, production there is powered by hydropower, that has a smaller carbon footprint and buying aluminum from elsewhere. And when we're factoring that in as a company, there may even be a policy in their own country that, that actually forces them to think about this. Um, that becomes a competitive advantage for production in Canada, which has a clean grid. I mentioned the same argument for, for mining, you know, uh, bitcoins, right? So that actually, so hydro is, is already made our grid, our grid very clean. Um, and this, what I, what I said, so the real opportunity for Canada and the reason we need Site C is that the, the big opportunity right now for Canada is uh, electrification. And what I mean by that is getting, getting other sources of energy onto the grid, onto our already very clean electricity grid, which we can get to 100%. We could get it to 100% 100 by 2030 if we wanted to. Uh, so that's largely cars, obviously, electric cars. So if everybody, you know, in 10, 20, when you think about how fast electric car demand is going to go up over the next few decades in BC, think about the electricity demand that comes with that. But also buildings. I read a stat the other day, um, something like 75, 80%, a very big number of households in Canada use gas uh, or fossil fuel for heating. So that's a big one. And, uh, and there's debates are getting around like, you know, natural gas versus electricity, heating bills and costs and all that, I understand. But, you know, it's a big source of, uh, of, of, of emissions in Canada and buildings as well and heating buildings. And there's other ways to address that as well with efficiency, like homes that are more efficient and just don't use as much power. And that's obviously a big thing that's happening as well. We're actually uh, thinking about energy efficiency a lot right now as an organization. Um, so, you know, hydro, all which is to say is electrification is getting you know our homes and our cars and a number of things onto the electricity grid is really important for Canada specifically, which already has a pretty good grid to lower its emissions. And hydro is just this huge base that we have as a nation that allows us to put us already in a good position to do that. Um, I'm, yeah, I know you're right about you know China with a number with a lot of hydro projects. Uh, I don't have any numbers in my head to, to rattle off, unfortunately. Um, you know, I, in terms of costs, yeah, I mean, I think. I mean, it's competitive. It's a lot. Thing with like hydro is it's, you know, it can take twenty, you know, ten, twenty years or whatever to build a giant hydro dam, right? Where, so you're you're trying to guess demand. And the nice thing about like wind and solar is you can just kind of keep building incrementally, right? Like you can just really respond to demand. You can put the stuff up way faster, and and you don't need to make these huge guesses about like long-term demand. <laughs> Even though I just said it's going to go up, but like. 
you know, and, and when it's like cost competitive and like lower risk because of that, um, Hydra's really useful, obviously, as a, as, a, as a backstop because it doesn't have the issue with, well, you know, when the wind's not blowing as much or the sun's not out. So Hydra's still, I think, you know, an important part of, you know, the overall energy makeup for sure. But I think as a lot of countries expand their electricity, they are going to look at these types because they're like lower risk and they're a lot faster to put out. But Hydra certainly is a big, is, is, is important part of the picture. Um, do I have anything else to say on that? Okay, so speaking of Ballard, a number of, quite a few years ago, before we sold our Ballard stock, at the AGM, the president at the time, whose name I've forgotten, said the Stone Age didn't end because of a shortage of stones uh, when he was talking about their own company. When somebody mentioned, you know, mining lithium, we're going to run out. Uh, just like we never run, ran out of stones, um, couldn't we, as things go on, recycle the lithium from old lithium batteries? True, it's, it's like reciting, recy recycling anything. You lose a little bit in the recycling uh, process. But we could continue to recycle because nobody's going to keep a car for 100 years. It's going to look like hell for one thing. But uh, you know, people exchange their cars every 10 years, if not more often than that. So we'll get the old 10-year-old cars and that'll be, yeah, okay. So that's the recycling. And there was a third thing. Oh yeah, condos. Our particular strata is talking about converting uh, to bringing in some uh, cars. And our president, who's an engineer, so we we have that advantage, uh, said, well, he wants to hear of a few people who want it. And so uh, t just Wednesday's Vancouver Sun had an article about EVs where they had owners mention their experiences, quite a few different brands. And they mentioned that it costs $850 to put it in. Now, I presume, assume that's for a house. But how realistic is a figure like that to put in uh, a fast charger. Um, uh, we built a house and we had the builder put it in, like rough it in, but it was just built into the price, so I have no idea what he charges for that. Yeah, um, first question on, on recycling. Uh, it is definitely, it's something that, as I talked about like mining and so forth, but another way in which we get you know, these metals back is through recycling. It is, it is definitely like a smaller, much smaller percentage than, than mining right now, but it's something that can grow and become a bigger source um, of sourcing these, these, these products. And I know is one just very small example. Recently, a few months ago, I think Nissan announced that all of its old, so Nissan has like the Leaf, which is a very popular EV, very affordable EV as well. Um, all, whenever, when their cars kind of end their, end their, uh, their life cycle, they're gonna take their old batteries and they're uh, using them to create lights, like actually like in Japan. So they're actually building, uh, they're actually using those old batteries for something else, for, for something else that doesn't require as much battery power because you know, they're not as effective at that point. So yes, recycling and reusing, super important um, and definitely something that I think will grow uh, as, as these products grow. Um, and your second point about um, costs of installing chargers, uh, yeah, I mean, there's a cost to it. I mean, like I so said, there are rebates. I don't have the exact numbers in my mind. Um, all I'd say to that is, you know, think about how much you would spend on gas every, and there are some comparisons, and it is way cheaper. Oh, there was a really good one recently, and it was actually done for BC, and now I wish I had it on the tip of my tongue, because it was very compelling about just how much cheaper it is to power your EV than to fill a tank of gas. It is so much cheaper. 
Um, yeah, yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, it, there's a reason that if you look at like all the cabs in, in Vancouver that they're all hybrids, right? Like, you know, even though that's like a small energy savings, hybrids are better, I think, for like city driving than highway driving. But um, the this, this starting and stop, actually, starting and stopping actually, I think, helps it. But uh, yeah, especially if you're driving a lot, obviously you're gonna save those, those savings are gonna come even faster. But um, I think we're going to see especially among like car shares and taxi services, I think you're going to see like pretty quick adoption um, because they're, they have the, they have the, they're thinking long-term, like they're, they're thinking about their budget long-term and they're thinking about how much these cars are driving. So they're certainly, certainly crunching those numbers. But uh, yeah, I mean, I can't say with certain authority, but I'm pretty sure if you buy like a, you know, a Leaf or a more affordable electric car, you could run the numbers. And I think, you know, it wouldn't take too long to come out with it. You can never predict gas prices like for the next few years perfectly. You can't come up with a perfect equation for this, but I think there's a compelling case on the affordability front. There are other reasons to own an EV as well. They're nice, they don't smell, they're quiet, but uh, there's definitely an affordability argument. Although I don't know how many years per car. It would vary so much. Uh, first off, thanks for the presentation. I have a comment. I believe in 2006, 2008, Ontario brought in a micro feed-in tariff program that allows homeowners to sell back to the grid, so it's not just Alberta. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah, and uh, second, you talked mostly in your presentation about what companies are doing. Uh, some of the questions touched a bit more on kind of the government side, and you did mention the BC carbon tax and the potential to amend the Strata Act by the province, but could you expand on what the government can do and what the city can do? Like, they recently announced they're not going to hit their Drina City targets, and there's still been some lingering issues around making an actual walkable uh, urban planning model in Vancouver that's still been fairly slow to implement. So could you just expand on what governments at the provincial and uh, municipal level can do? You're right about Ontario. That's ringing a bell now. I was like, I wasn't sure that was just Alberta. Ontario also has it as well. Um, yeah, in terms of provincial policies, um, like one of the, one of them, and this this is for all levels of government. Is I mentioned government procurement. So how the government buys things, and it has like you know, as with anything government, it has a very like specific way it does the thing, and. So, you know, generally speaking, procurement right now, they just look at the initial cost. They don't look at the lifetime cost. They just look, okay, this is our budget, this is how much it's gonna cost, and, you know, they have a certain portion of that decision is based on that cost. But what, you know, one thing that would help with that is, is well, two things. One is sort of looking at a, a sort of life, life cycle analysis, which is to say, okay, what's this gonna cost over 20 years? Like, this thing's gonna be in operation, or this building is going to be used for 40 years, um, so what's it going to cost over that? What are the operating costs? Because those are huge costs. And so if this building that you buy up front maybe costs a little bit more, but is way more energy efficient, for example, like it saves a lot more energy, um, then you may come to realize that over time we're going to save money on this thing, actually. So, uh, but if you're, you know, if the way that you're set up to make these decisions, like this very rigorous mathematical kind of equation, only factors in the upfront costs, you just don't have a systematic way to factor in those lifetime savings. So government provinces updating the way it procures things to factor that in uh, is a way, and as part of the, and that would benefit more, um, 
you know, products, projects and, and, and so forth and contractors that are lower emissions because, you know, efficiency saves money, energy efficiency saves money, but also factoring in uh, carbon pollution as well, like just directly factoring in like that's just like cost. It's something that is considered in, uh, in when you're buying, when government's buying something. So that's something that actually every level of government can do is one example. Um, at, at a municipal level, it's really... Uh, I mean, obviously, provinces can decide what projects they're approving and not approving as well, like big energy projects and that sort of thing, and, you know, LNG. Uh, that's, that makes a big difference, you know. <laughs> you know, how much LNG obviously goes underway in BC will make a huge impact. That's a provincial decision. will make it have a huge impact on emissions in this province. Um, and then at the city level, it is a lot of, like, uh, it's all of, like, building stuff. So it is a lot to do with, like, these EV chargers. And obviously anything to get, you talked about transportation. So anything, you know, to get people out of cars, um, whether it's biking or walking or on transit, uh, anything to reduce congestion obviously makes a big difference. And that has a lot to do with city planning and development and and honestly, investment in, in transportation, right? Like, and that's something that in Canada, it's always a struggle to get the money that we need to, it always feels like our uh, transportation projects are behind where we want them to be. I lived in Toronto for uh, four years, and my God, like that is the conversation, the number of just like failed attempts to, you know, to get money for certain projects, and they get delayed and delayed and delayed and canceled and restarted. It's terrible, it's terrible financially, like, Basically, tra transit projects become political footballs, and the end result is they end up costing way more, and they take way longer to get built. So uh, I think you know we need to come up with a, I think a way of. Uh, by the way, I'm talking totally off script. My personal opinion. I wrote when I worked for Canadian Business Magazine as a journalist. I wrote a, a feature on this issue about transit funding. That's what I'm drawing on right now. Um, I think we need a way to you know actually have dedicated revenue that's not political money for not just operating transit but building new transit right population is going to grow we're going to need more transit so it doesn't become a referendum you know over because voters are not like it, it's somebody's job to figure out where transportation where we need transportation demand it's a very technical question and if it's not a political thing and we can actually keep up with demand and there's dedicated money to, to expand transportation in that way i think we're not going to have these issues, and we're going to have the transportation networks we actually want. Again, that's just my opinion on that issue. Hi, morning. Thank you for the presentation. Uh, my name is Prasanna Krishnan, and I work in the clean energy industry. And um, I had a couple comments here addressing some things that we've already said, if I may share. Uh, you touched upon this earlier with respect to cost comparison of renewable energy, let's say particularly solar and coal. And there was a comment back here earlier about uh, subsidies. Um, encouragingly, it's now um, uh, the information is available and it's, it's factual that in a large part of North America, particularly the United States, uh, renewable generation is cheaper than coal and so utilities uh, are increasingly adding only renewable or a large portion of renewable to their acquisition goals and divesting of coal. Um, there is a comment about nuclear earlier and uh, one of the a couple of ways to look at nuclear not that it's good or bad but when it comes to efficient use of capital and why we may want to do renewable energy in the presentation you talked about the distributed grid so virtual grids homeowners uh, 
the current grid as we as we know it is set up for central generation such as nuclear or hydroelectric but the direction that this transformation is going is distributed at homes and virtual power and just tying up capital in a central generation going back to your point about you can't predict demand for the future that's one potential argument against nuclear and how you can just free up that money and get a return on it faster through renewable energy and the whole idea of smart grid and being able to control different sources intelligently based on demand. And uh, you had a point about batteries and recycling lithium. In, uh, and that's definitely happening. There are a lot of companies innovating in that. Another uh, direction that uh, I believe Canada could go in is because of our mining background and things like uh, aluminum zinc, is using cheaper metals for which there's already an existing mining supply chain and also existing re recyclable program is using those as part of innovations in new technology and that's another direction that's, that's going in a uh, company that i worked with a couple years ago we were doing that but one of the challenges of innovation is it's expensive and time consuming so money runs out and that's where i think canadian policy on encouraging more entrepreneurship and supporting that uh, the way they do it, for example, in a country like the U.S., there's a lot to learn from that. We'd have to take a different perspective, but there, there is a lot of movement in uh, Canadian policy around encouraging entrepreneurship, specifically in the clean energy sector. Thanks for chiming in. You probably know more than I do in many of these things, so appreciate that. Uh, thanks for your presentation. I really learned a lot of new things which I didn't know before, and I hope that... Uh, in the next uh, few years, 10 years, maybe 20 years, uh, the new technology would allow us to solve totally the energy problem. But I, my question is right now different uh, side. Uh, what kind of negative uh, things is bringing uh, 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 solar, uh, bringing solar panels and uh, windmills? Negative, yeah, because I heard about some negative as well. So my question is, because we are up today, you know much better everything. So I just wanted to know if it is something beside costs, because costs are still quite expensive. What is negative? Yeah, well, I mean, costs aren't necessarily that expensive um, anymore. But I mean, I'll, I'll just, I don't really agree with them, but I'll just kind of some of the criticisms that we, maybe we see. One of the most common ones, it's quite absurd, which relates to wind turbines people make are birds, birds right? Um, it's, the, like, yeah, some birds die. It's sad, unfortunately. I'm a vegetarian uh, myself. But the number of birds that die from turbines versus cats, and I love cats. I also have a cat. Skyscrapers, so many things. I, there was a list. This doesn't even crack the top ten. Like, it's so, it's unfortunate, of course. But, like, it's... Like it's it's really small compared to so many other things we do that kill way more words, birds. And you know what the number one thing killing birds is? It's climate change. That's the number one thing killing birds. So that's that's why I'd respond to that that criticism. It's still a you know a negative thing, but that's my response to it. Um, I mean, obviously the mining thing comes up sometimes, but I think we've already kind of uh, talked about that quite a bit and the importance of sustainable mining. Um, People talk about um, the fact that you know solar. Well, solar doesn't do anything when it's dark out, or it's not as effective when it's cloudy out, or you know wind is not as effective when the wind's not blowing. You know, 
Um, but you know, the, the answer to that, well, there's a number of answers to that, but the, the leading answer to that is usually to do with battery storage. And battery storage is something that, you know, even five years ago wasn't great, but it's really rapidly evolving now and is a huge part of the solution. So um, I think that's the way that, you know, these types of power become, are going to increasingly become more effective is by storing that powder, power and using, like, like virtual power as well. So we're using it really efficiently as well. So there's solutions. And that's why hydro power is still important as well, because hydro power does have that reliability. So this is the most common criticisms I hear. If you have any, like, specific ones you want me to address, I can. Okay, I'm just going to fit myself in here for a moment. Uh, two different points. Number one is, uh, as you notice, there's a new guy passing the microphones around today. And uh, I had 40 years experience on stage, six nights a week, using microphones. So I think that's why they gave it. So I'm a professional, so please don't try this at home. <laughs> <laughs> and now my point, the uh, question for you is, uh, my first car was a 1960 Thunderbird, and I love the sound of the engine and so on. Uh, if I were to buy another, I would like to be able to, to change it to hydrogen, of course. I don't want to use gasoline anymore. But just wondering what's the state of hydrogen development. I may have missed it if you spoke about it, but please let me know. Sure. Um, so hydrogen, <laughs> to know a little less about, I did mention, well, obviously, uh, Ballard. Um, hydrogenics. So we actually do have, um, those are two, I mean, in that field, those are two of the leading companies. Um, most people have decided that certainly, you know, Tesla and Elon Musk have decided that electric cars, that's, that's the winner. Japan is kind of the, the exception. So Japan is still uh, really betting pretty hard on, on hydrogen power. Um, and I, I mean, my understanding is hydrogen is still is constant right now and it's a little bit behind, but um, yeah, we'll see. I mean, it could be, I know uh, Toronto is just approved or approved a study or, you know, the GO commuter line in, in Metro Toronto. Um, they're going to introduce, a, uh, it already exists in some places, a hydrail, which is a hydrogen-powered train. So the, and they, they looked at doing you know, like an electric one and a bunch of different options, but I, I believe they've decided to um, pursue, I don't know if they've 100% committed to it or just very seriously considering it, but uh, a hydrogen-powered train. So, you know, how are these things going to shake up? Like, I, I'm not kind of sure. It's early days. Like, are we going to see a number of hydrogen-powered personal cars? Or is that going to kind of fall off in the, sa in the same way that, you know, Blu-rays took out HD DVDs, if you remember those? <laughs> um, and maybe hydrogen is going to have a lot of life in public transit, right? Like, China is buying, you know, Ballard's products for buses. Um, there are a lot of electric buses as well. China, by the way, I never talked about China. So many electric buses. Um, the city of uh, Shenzhen has every, every bus in its fleet is now electric, every single one. And it has something like three times more buses than New York City. Um, so I think we could see a lot more uh, hydrogen-powered like trains and public transit. And I'm sure it has some advantages. I, don't, I just don't know enough about the distinctions. But um, yeah, certainly, I think one of my coworkers drove a hydrogen car, like a personal car. I think they asked if he wanted to test drive it. He, he had a good time. I, I just recently moved to a new part of Vancouver, and I found out by, by accident we have a united church in our area that's really left-wing and really pro-environmental. Uh, uh, I mean, it's really pro-climate change, and they, they do a whole bunch of public forums or whatever. And uh, even though I'm an atheist, I now go to their meetings, and they welcome me because we've agreed that we agree in one important area, climate change. But anyway, the minister, and she's on several, I think, national committees or whatever, and, and you might like this because you, you just said that you're a... Uh, 
a vegan. So, so have you heard this statement? She said a vegan driving a Hummer is less damaging to the environment than a meat eater driving a Prius. Is that's is that is there technical calculations for that? There are. I, I think that probably debated. I mean, it's certainly the case. And again, it's not something we as an we focus on energy. I'm personally a vegetarian, uh, not a vegan. Um, my primary motivation for being vegetarian, again, off script right now, is animal rights. But climate is also a nice. It's more than a bonus. It's it's a very nice additional reason to be a vegetarian. Um, I also just don't like meat that much. Uh, but it's true that, yeah, no, eating less meat uh, is a great way to lower your carbon footprint. And there are multiple ways of doing that, right? It doesn't, even if you don't want to be vegan or fully vegetarian, just cutting it down significantly, cutting out red meat, like there's, there's ways of doing that. There are a number, of a number of things that as an individual, you know, you can do to lower your carbon footprint. I, I, I say that with the, uh, the caveat of, but where change needs to happen is on a macro level. It's big policies like, you know, us acting as individual consumers isn't going to get us there. Um, this really needs to happen at, like, the top level. We, you know, the responsibility can't be passed down to us. But having said that, additionally to that happening, I think it's good as an individual to try to lower your carbon footprint. And, and certainly EV adoption is something that's going to go a long way. Uh, flying is the worst thing you can do, unfortunately. And they're going to have electric planes. Yes, they already have electric planes. They're small right now. But there, they, there are already electric planes that exist. Um, and I don't think so. <laughs> oh, I, maybe. I, I've just never, it, maybe. I, I don't know. I've never heard of it. Um, I think we see more biofuels. So there's already, that's something that already happens for like jumbo jets is basically using biofuels as opposed to fossil fuels to power them. So, um, yeah, there, there's, there are definitely ways, like electric planes for smaller planes for now, eventually bigger planes, and like bio, increasingly mixing in biofuels to at least get down the... So, you know, it's not like, it's not necessarily about swapping one fuel up for another. You can, you know, increasingly blend in like ethanol and other types of biofuels to at least, you know, bring down the emissions 7% or something. But that adds up. When you think about how many planes are flying around or how many cars are on the road, if you make all those cars like 5 or 10% cleaner, the actual cumulative impact is huge. Um, so that's that's one way, but yeah, flying is flying is the number one thing. Unfortunately, it's funny because even people that are you know hugely climate conscious don't even some do, but most of them don't think about climate. You know, they may be vegan. You know, they may take public transit and, and do all these things, and they don't think twice about flying, which is actually the worst one, unfortunately. And I'm guilty of it. But uh, yeah, no, meat is meat is another one for sure. Yeah, apparently a lot of methane. Methane is a more potent uh, greenhouse gas than carbon pollution. It's way more carbon pollution. Like carbon pollution is the number one thing we're talking about here. But uh, methane is like, you know, a unit of methane or whatever is worse than carbon.